Hey there, welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, digging beneath the surface to uncover the hidden ideas that form us and the church and our culture. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode 35. Linda, Linda, listen. <laughs> Today's episode is going to be a lot of fun. If you don't understand the episode title, just search for it online and watch the video. It's hilarious. We're going to start with some pretty heady theology and then somehow end up in modern day sales training today. Yes, folks, we're again looking at both of God's books as we explore immersive communities of formation, or what I lazily abbreviate ICFs. And I promise, looking at both the Bible and natural studies, like anthropology or neuroscience or sales training, will not get you thrown into the evangelical fires of hell. We've discovered through our study of the Bible and anthropology that there are five key elements necessary to form any one person like another person. Intensive, substantial time, specifically designed habits, intimate, trusted relationships, intentional and purposeful community, and repetitious and increasingly complex instruction. As we continue to put some flesh on the concept of ICFs this season, we're exploring a few key points on each of these five elements. Now, we've already looked at time, and we made a few initial observations about its importance in our discipleship. Number one, a disciple prioritizes time in intentional relationships, time with God, with others, with ourselves, and with creation and culture for the purpose of becoming more like Jesus. Number two, a disciple is present in time. We're spiritually attuned, gently pursuing, wisely inviting in our relationships with God and others and self and creation. A disciple minimizes distraction so that we are present in our relationships. Can't remember the last time I sat down with a friend or a business person or even a pastor for a lunch or breakfast without realizing there were three personalities at the table. Me, them, and their phone. Though perhaps I'm just dull company. And three, a disciple spends more time in dialogue and less time in monologue. This should be true in our corporate worship as well as our normal day-to-day relationships. Now we're exploring the second key element of formation, habits. We've made a few initial observations about habits. First, we define them. Habits are repeated patterns of our eight heart view indicators in the context of our four relationships. So how we think, behave, feel, speak, relate, and how we treat our health, time, and money in relation to God, others, ourselves, and creation. We've also concluded that changing our habits may be as simple as just doing the things Jesus did, but it may not be. Our hearts may be formed solely by changing our habits, but it's not always that easy. Sometimes heart change has to happen first. Sometimes the heart and habits change together. The human heart is complex, so just trying to will ourselves to change may not be the solution, and sometimes it may make things worse. That's why there are five key elements of formation and not just this one. We're human beings, not human doings. And last episode, we looked at our first habit, the habit of hearing God. Since we're looking at these key elements in the light of our four relationships, today we're going to explore the habit of hearing someone else. Other people. Not their words, but their hearts. Okay, we're going to start today with some deep theology as we set the stage. I've made the case that Western Christianity today doesn't appear to understand or embrace genuine discipleship, this journey to become more like our teacher. We're apprentices of Jesus for the purpose of becoming more like Jesus, so that we think like he thinks and relate like he relates, desire what he desires, and love like he loves. That our conscious and unconscious ideas become his ideas. 
For the most part, modern church institutions don't seem to be oriented around that journey, the journey of forming our hearts. The modern church is concerned about intellectual advancement and perhaps spiritual experiences. Those are good things. And some are concerned about putting more butts in seats or building bigger institutions. I'm not as excited about those. Certain aspects of modern Christianity are very concerned about evangelism. Though even that has been reduced in the last century or so because of modernism and postmodernism. A few episodes ago, I mentioned a book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. It's a pretty heady theological textbook written in the 1950s. Murray takes a careful look at salvation from the New Testament in its comprehensive form. Now, while you and I tend to assume today that salvation means the moment we choose to follow Jesus, Murray teaches that the New Testament presents a much broader, much more comprehensive picture. Salvation as a process, even a journey. Now, lots of people know Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Well, as popular as verse 28 is, verse 29 is as equally unpopular. Very few people want to memorize that verse. Verse 30 is often considered Paul's summary of this journey of salvation. Paul articulates the beginning and the middle and the end of our journey. He writes, And these whom he predestined he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Calling, justification, glorification. The beginning, middle, and the end of the process of salvation. When you think about it, we're pretty comfortable with this type of process in other areas of life. Let's say in high school, you felt drawn to the field of accounting. You felt called to become a CPA. And so off you went. After passing your exam, your standing changed. You went from being a non-CPA to being recognized as a fully accredited CPA. Having this change in standing made all the difference in the world. But you still had a long way to go in your journey to become a mature, wise, expert CPA. There were a journey of ups and downs and mistakes and successes and mentorship and life experience. You are eventually inducted into the CPA Hall of Fame. So, calling... You were drawn to a career as a CPA. Justification, you were legally recognized as a CPA. Glorification, at the end of your journey, you became a Hall of Fame CPA. Now, my example isn't all that theologically accurate, but you get the point. Even if we're not familiar with salvation as a process, we're certainly familiar with other processes that are very similar to it. John Murray and other theologians have filled in some of the other pieces from various parts of the New Testament and teach that salvation, in its fullest sense, actually has eight steps. Now, we're not going to dig into these, but here are the steps in order. I just want you to note where our topic of interest, sanctification or discipleship, comes in the journey of salvation. So, step one, calling. Step two, regeneration. Step three, faith and repentance. Step four, justification. Five, adoption. 6. Sanctification, 7. Perseverance, and 8. Glorification. So the comprehensive picture of salvation in the New Testament is far more than the moment we accept Jesus or choose to follow Jesus or what we commonly think of as being born again or saved. At least from my perspective, the vast majority of teaching and evangelism efforts and unconscious ideas about the gospel today focus on just one or two steps in the journey of salvation, usually steps 3 and 4 faith and repentance, and justification. We believe in Christ, and we turn from our sin. Then we are justified. 
It's a legal term that means our standing before God has changed. We are right with God, not because of us, but because of Christ. Those two steps are really good news. When we're justified, we are saved, and our salvation is secure. But what about step six, sanctification? If sanctification is an essential part of our journey of salvation, what is it? How do we engage in it? This modern-day reduction and preoccupation with just two of the eight steps of our salvation journey is both a cause and effect of the three primary problems. If we boil down the essence of the Christian life to simply believing in Jesus and then being justified, we're missing a whole lot of our journey in the kingdom. That's why I say the modern idea of the gospel of salvation is not actually the complete journey of salvation that the New Testament outlines. The gospel of salvation today is really the gospel of step four justification with the requisite beliefs. The gospel of the kingdom, however, assumes all eight steps. We have been rescued, and as we become more like our rescuer, he invites us to rescue the world with him. This step six, sanctification, is a big deal. This is where our character is formed more into the character of our king, and that has kingdom impact. Because any meaningful focus on this formation is missing in many Christian institutions, Dallas Willard called sanctification or discipleship the great omission. All right, so what does all this theology have to do with our habits? Well, our habits are tied to our expectations, and we have lots of unconscious ideas of expectation. So if modern church institutions aren't prioritizing forming people into being more like Jesus, we certainly won't have that expectation either. So we won't explore or try habits that would help form us to be like him. Well, consider this. If you were to list the most common habits that we should engage in as Christians, what are the ones that most readily pop into your mind? So, number one, probably corporate worship. We should show up to church each weekend. Two, prayer. Three, Bible study, both corporately and individually. And four, maybe something like small group, so that we can experience some form of community. So let's compare that list of four to just one list of habits that have been practiced for centuries by disciples of Jesus. This is a list that Richard Foster gives in his book, Celebration of Discipline. Meditation, prayer, fasting, study, simplicity, solitude, submission, service, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. In Willard's book on spiritual disciplines, he mentions a few more. Frugality, chastity, secrecy, sacrifice. As I noted from Richard Foster last episode, there is no comprehensive list of spiritual disciplines or habits because these habits can be as creative as the human person. So why don't we hear more about these habits or spiritual disciplines, this wonderful key element of formation apart from the very good practices of corporate worship and prayer and like activities? Well, because we don't expect the Christian life to be one of intentional formation. Trying, engaging, and practicing habits is ingrained in the heart and mind of anyone who wants to be formed into someone else, whether you want to be a heart surgeon or a CPA or a concert pianist or a better husband or wife. Spiritual disciplines work the same way. If we expect to become more like Jesus, we're going to look at his habits and those of his friends and we're going to try them. We're going to experiment, we'll test, we'll work on this thing for a while and then work on that thing for a while. Last episode, we looked at the habit of hearing God. That doesn't seem so bad. Most of us wouldn't mind hearing from God on a regular basis. But what about hearing other people? I don't mean listening to their words. I mean listening to their hearts. So let's explore this habit of what we'll call heart listening. We develop the discipline of hearing others' hearts so that we may love and serve them better. 
so that we may be redeemers and reconcilers and healers as we live in the kingdom. Jesus is a master at this. It's extraordinary. As I continue to read through the Gospels, I'm amazed at how Jesus immediately senses and knows the motivations and conditions of people's hearts. In Mark 2, Jesus knows the motives of the Pharisees when he heals a man and tells him his sins are forgiven. He seems to listen to the Pharisees' hearts again in chapter 3 when he heals a man on the Sabbath. In Mark 10, Jesus knows the true motivations of the rich young ruler. In chapter 12, the Pharisees try to trick Jesus with a loaded question, but Mark tells us Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Jesus knew the motivations in Judas's heart. He knew that Peter would deny him. Jesus knew the heart of the woman at the well. He knew the heart of the Syrophoenician woman. Well, you might be thinking, well, of course Jesus knows the hearts of people. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. Well, fair enough. But don't forget that this side of Pentecost, that very same God lives inside you. That seems pretty close if he wants to give us some insight into the heart of someone who may need us. But we see the same sort of heart-listening habit with some non-divines, namely the apostles in the book of Acts. In Acts 3, Peter healed the lame beggar and the guy didn't even ask for it. Peter discerns the selfish motivations in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. In chapter 8, he gets the sense that Simon the magician's heart isn't in the right spot and he tells him so in no uncertain terms. In chapter 14, Paul senses a man has enough faith to be healed and he doesn't even speak to him. People who walk closely with Jesus have an intense curiosity about the condition of the hearts of those around them, and they're listening. And as it appears, sometimes the Holy Spirit reveals it for the purpose of truth or healing, not for fortune-telling or power-mongering, but for the increase of the kingdom. Well, maybe we're not quite comfortable with the idea that disciples of Jesus are able to discern the motivations or concerns of those around them in a supernatural way. Fair enough. Let's look at a more natural discipline of discerning hearts, asking the right questions. I first started my career in radio. Well, that's not entirely correct. I first started my career as a broke, unsuccessful musician. Then I worked in radio. I worked in various operational roles at a radio station in Pittsburgh, but eventually was invited to work in the department where the money was made. Radio advertising sales. Despite the fact that that was where the money was to be made, I hated it and didn't make much money. However, I was paid to be trained in a sales system called Sandler Sales. Now, there are lots of different sales training approaches and companies, but the Sandler Sales program was actually the best part of my time selling radio ads. And the training ended up being helpful for life and relationships, not just selling airtime, at which I was terrible. It's in the training that I came to appreciate the habit of being genuinely curious about people. The program taught that in the sales cycle, it's important to develop a real, appropriately emotional relationship with your prospect. If you were going to make a sale that truly benefited and served your prospect, you needed to build a relationship centered on trust. That meant a good prospect was one who allowed the relationship to develop to where they would share their pain, the real under-the-surface need. In fact, the sales program taught that if the prospect showed no interest in developing a trusted relationship, it was time to move on. No trust, no sale. But how did the salesperson invite the relationship into a level of appropriate depth where the prospect would share their heart, the underlying reason why they might need to buy radio ads? Well, by asking the question, why, at least five times. And by listening, not just to the words, but to the heart. We were trained on how to ask why at least five times without sounding robotic or silly. So let me give an example of how this might work. 
Let's say a radio advertising salesperson is meeting with the owner of a dry cleaner and she meets with him in his office. So would you help me understand why you might be interested in buying advertising on our radio station? The dry cleaner responds, well, I like your programming and I just wanted to learn more about your station. Okay, that's great. I'm glad you resonate with the programming. What about the programming interests you? The dry cleaner responds, it's family friendly. We're a family owned company and we want to build long-term friendly relationships with our customers. Some customers come in once a week. We don't just take their money, we talk with them. We get to know about their lives. We know their names, they know ours. That's amazing, the salesperson replies sincerely. You're a different type of dry cleaner from what many people experience. I would guess most customers at dry cleaners feel like a transaction, not a relationship. But it sounds like you have great clientele already. Why might you want to invest in radio ads if you've already built such a good customer base? The dry cleaner responds, We do have great customers, but we don't have enough of them. We've grown primarily through referrals, but two competitors have opened up within three miles of us in the past year and the economy's down. We just aren't seeing enough people come through the door to hit our goals. She responds, well, I'm sorry to hear that. That certainly sounds like a challenge. Well, besides the competitors in the economy, have you identified any other reasons why your numbers may not be where you want them? Not really, the dry cleaner responds, but I may need to lay one or two people off, long-term employees, and I really would like to avoid that. The salesperson replies, well, I can certainly understand that. Besides some potential staff changes, have you identified any other impact on you or your business because of this new competition and the down economy? Sure, the owner responds. I've had to reduce my own income, and I have a daughter I need to send to college in two years. Okay, so the salesperson asked the question why five times in that conversation in a somewhat natural manner. She didn't use the word why every time. I highlighted the key phrases she used on the blog entry if you want to see how she guides the conversation. She invited the dry cleaner into a relationship and allowed him to determine whether he shared the core of his concern, whether he chose to trust the salesperson. The conversation started with a surface-level answer. I want to learn more about your product. But the conversation ended with the prospect sharing his heart, his true, deeper emotional need. His income is down, and he has a daughter who may not be able to go to college. His pain was that he may not be able to provide for someone he loves dearly, his daughter. And he may lose some long-term employees, people who depend on him for their livelihoods. Now what's the salesperson's posture throughout? legitimately caring and concerned, truly interested in the business and in the owner, and inviting the prospect into a more trusted relationship. In other words, she served and listened to the owner, desiring to know his heart. She didn't share about her products or prices or features. That would come later if it made sense. Instead, she asked careful questions and invited the dry cleaner into a relationship. In other words, she was practicing heart listening. Salespeople sometimes get a bad rap in our culture, and sometimes for good reason, but a mature, selfless salesperson is often a fantastic example of a servant, a person with courageous curiosity and a deep desire to listen to the hearts of people. This is a habit of a disciple, engaging people with the hope of inviting them into deeper, trusted relationships for the purpose of formation. People in ICFs practice heart listening. I found this habit to be increasingly rare. Too few people are genuinely curious anymore, particularly about other people. We're often concerned about being right or being heard, but those are often self-centered pursuits. But if you find a friend who is consistently and genuinely curious about you, who selflessly listens to your heart and rarely settles for your surface statements and stock answers to questions, that's a friend worth keeping.
All right, let's give a few bullet points on heart listening as a habit. Number one, what are we listening for? The quick and easy answer is heart view indicators. Just as we practice exploring our own hearts, we develop an attunement for picking up patterns in those around us. Patterns of thoughts, feelings, behaviors, relationships, words, as well as their patterns involving health, time, and money. Now, there's a world to explore here, and it's super fascinating, but I'll give you just one example that I've been practicing for a while. I listen very carefully to what someone doesn't say. I listen for the topics they avoid, for the discussions they leave. Why? Because it helps me listen to their hearts. Like most people, I have several non-confrontational people in my life. So there are times I might ask them an intentional question or make a comment that is slightly uncomfortable or on something we might politely disagree. Why would I intentionally do this? Well, was Jesus non-confrontational? There's no possible way you can read the Gospels and come to that conclusion. Sometimes he purposefully invited confrontation. So if Jesus was comfortable with confrontation and engaged it for the purpose of growing the kingdom and we're growing to be like Jesus, guess what? We should become people who are increasingly comfortable with appropriate confrontation. Look, a non-confrontational person is generally someone who has deep struggles with their own identity. They may be people pleasers, which is generally just a way of covering up old and perhaps forgotten wounds and hurts. They may be pretty insecure, if not afraid. Oftentimes they're angry, though they may come across as soft and gentle. Ironically, people who perpetually avoid conflict are usually the most conflicted. In their attempts to control their relationships and conversations, they end up giving pieces of themselves away, losing their identity, and denting themselves to genuine formation. Our posture towards a non-confrontational person should be compassion. But compassion is rarely passive. Compassion suggests we invite them into formative relationships, where the ideas and desires that perpetuate a non-confrontational nature are slowly and gently challenged and changed. Well, there's a myriad of examples of heart listening. Just listening to someone talk about money for five minutes will usually reveal all sorts of ideas and desires in their hearts. Money is one of the easiest indicators to discern. But paying attention to things like pace of speech, body posture, distractedness, that's generally easy to pick out someone living a performance-based lifestyle, something we could all be delivered from. All right, number two, why is learning heart listening difficult? Well, it's a loaded question. Part of the answer comes from the current Christian dependency on monologue versus dialogue. We're generally trained to receive information through sermons and podcasts and shows and events, none of which requires us to work through or to wrestle with the information being provided. Now, this has impacted everything from evangelism to church construction. My guess is the very best evangelists are the very best listeners, not the best talkers. A few years ago, I was walking into a Major League Baseball game and a group of so-called evangelists were yelling through bullhorns to the crowds entering the stadium, telling us all we were damned and quoting their best scriptures to prove it. I can't imagine anyone was converted that day, and I suspect the crowd slid more towards hell than heaven. But my guess is the evangelists went home and checked the box and rested in their interpretation of Isaiah where it says the word of God doesn't return void. And most new churches are built to look like and function like auditoriums or concert venues. The musicians and pastors are on the stage and they present information to a separate group, the audience, who receive the information and then leave out the back door. And there's just the pace of Western life. If our days are constantly filled with activities and work and hobbies and entertainment and then we crash in bed at night exhausted, heart listening won't come very naturally to us. 
because it requires an intentionality and energy and some time to think. It requires placing the needs of the person we're engaged with before our own. I've been practicing this particular habit for years, and I have a long, long way to go. What's a great way to start? Practice at home. Start listening for heart view indicators from your spouse or your kids or your close friends. See if you can pick up on a need, a hurt, or a doubt someone has and gently ask meaningful, honoring questions that may lead beneath the surface. Practice asking why in some different ways. Just understand that lots of people won't go with you. They won't answer your why questions. They won't engage you in a deeper relationship. That's okay. Our role is to be inviting, not to accept every invitation. Third and lastly, what's said first is never what's being said. Every husband who has been through premarital counseling has taught this, though I'm not sure how many of us remember it. When my wife is upset, what she first tells me is making her upset is never what's making her upset. Years and years of typical Western education has not helped our relationship skills because it's based on responding to every asked question with an accurate answer and regurgitating pieces of information. It's informational and it has its place, but it's not relational. Remember, Jesus rarely answered a direct question, but he was uncannily good at listening to someone's heart. We're so conditioned to answer questions with stock replies. How are you doing? I'm fine. How's your day? Good. We do this with Christians and non-Christians alike. We assume the first thing said or the first question asked is actually the real statement or question. But most of the time, it isn't. So here's the last example for today. I really enjoy these stump the expert videos on YouTube or whatnot. A super smart apologist or academic type ventures out into the public, maybe to a park or a college campus, and invites students or other people to ask their most challenging questions to try to defeat the arguments of the expert. Now, if our views match those of the apologist, we quietly celebrate when he or she owns or destroys the arguments of the opponent. These types of videos are fun to watch, and I generally learn something by listening to the banter between the questioner and the expert. But when I watch Christian apologetic videos, I find myself getting a little sad. Because the question the person asks is never the question being asked. I recently watched a video in which a young woman asked the apologist if she was going to hell because she didn't believe in Jesus. She asked it with some measure of sarcasm. It was evident she was trying to goad the apologist. And it led to a healthy debate on the existence of heaven and hell, God's holiness, his love, salvation. It was a good, productive discussion. This is the way most of these videos go. The apologist expertly answers the question that's been asked. I just wonder what would happen if someone were to ask the young woman why she was asking about hell. What about her story about her experience with people and God prompted her to ask such a question? Many atheists are angry at a God they don't believe in. What in her story made her angry? maybe scared. In responding directly to the first statement made or the first question asked, we may be missing an opportunity for heart listening, to invite someone into a deeper truth, into an idea or desire that may need transforming. We do this from a position of compassion and service and honor. Understanding our interaction may cause a little tension, a little conflict, maybe some healthy confrontation. That's okay. That's the way Jesus did it. Hey, thanks for listening. Talking about spiritual disciplines and habits can get pretty deep, so I appreciate you engaging. And I certainly hope you aren't allowing me to monologue, but rather you're working through these things with God and maybe your spouse, a friend, someone you trust. The first habit we explored this season is hearing from God. Today we explored hearing the hearts of others, so you can probably guess the habit we'll be exploring next episode. 
If you're digging this season, give it a great rating and share the audio and the blog with your friends. And for more information, check us out at SoilandRoots.org or you can email me at fish at SoilandRoots.org. We'll see you next time.